Wonderful to be back here. Actually, let me just open up in a word of prayer because I want to actually bless you as much as I want to just ask for the Lord's leading in uh, what I want to share with you today. So, Father God, wow, you are incredible. You've given us life. We are created in your image. You've rescued us from darkness by the blood of the Lamb. You've called us. You speak to us through your word. You show us who you are through your creation. You show us who you are through the body of Messiah, through Israel, through history, through archaeology, through science, through healing, through prayer. This is an amazing time to be living in. I thank you for this congregation. I thank you for the calling of God on Andrew. I thank you for the calling of God on the leaders here, from everybody, from young to old. Father God, I pray blessings over everybody here, over their children, over their marriages, over individuals. You search hearts, Lord. You know where everybody is at. There is nothing that escapes your mind, your eye, your, your desire, your love, your sense of justice. This is an amazing time, Lord God. We give you praise. Amen. Okay, so this is kind of in three stages. I'm going to give you a little bit of an update. Well, actually, I'm going to fill you in a little bit about what is Bridges for Peace. Andrew gave you an Extreme Cole's Notes version. I'm going to give you just a little bit more. And then I want to give you an update on what's kind of going on with our family. Because most of you, I think I've met most of you before over the last decade. And, and then I want to talk about God's faithfulness and Israel. And this isn't just about Israel. Ultimately, it's, you know, it's all about God. So it's not even about you, me, Genesis House. It's not like we're the be-all, end-all. It is about God. And the Israel story is about a God who not just has this place favorites with this little nation, he chooses this nation because he also is going to use this nation to reach all nations. That's us. Okay? And, uh, and God is incredible. So if he's faithful, even when somebody, through our perception, doesn't deserve it, but if God's faithful to that, he's going to be also faithful to us. So, Bridges for Peace. We are Christians supporting Israel and building relationships between Christians and Jews in Israel and around the world. So why does a bridge have to be created? Or built? I mean, shout out. Why do you need? Why do we need bridges? Why do we need bridges in our world? And I'm talking practically. Cross over. To cross over. Okay. That's. I mean, essentially, that's the easiest, simplest answer. There's a chasm. There's water. There's a ravine. There's something that would be at least a huge pain in the neck or impossible to cross without the bridge. A bridge takes time. Okay. It cannot be shoddy. I mean, we have engineers who build bridges. Now, theoretically, maybe almost anybody can build the concept of a bridge, but most of these concepts of bridges would collapse and fall. So it needs care, it needs science, it needs engineering, architecture, all of this to be a successful bridge. Sometimes even successful bridges still collapse in our world. But it's to span something that would be impossible or extremely difficult without it. With the, with the bridge, Traffic can move from point A to B. Without the bridge, 
I mean, it, it's almost impossible, or it can be. And so, why do we need a bridge between Christians and Jews? It's a complicated story. It's a historical question that needs a historical answer. Um, it's very difficult to wrestle with. And it, a lot of Christians have no idea the past. So Jesus is a Jew. All of us, the, the first believers are Jewish. The message of Jesus goes out from there to the Gentile world. Amazing. This is the way we're supposed to be. Um, it doesn't take long before Christians, uh, clergy, theologies start developing that essentially cuts Israel out. Uh, it's basically, they're bad. God doesn't like them anymore. He's transferred all these promises that he originally gave them to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's given it to the church. We won, they lost, and there's spectrums of this belief that's called replacement theology. But this develops from textual writings, from sermons, into then action. Horrific actions throughout history, not by all Christians, not all Christians agreed with this theology, but predominantly, most of the church fathers, Roman Catholic Church, and it flows into the Protestant Church, where you have 17 centuries of this. So not only do you have writings and sermons, but then it begins to erupt. Like if these people are the, with the, the, the titles of Christ killers, murderers of God, God hates them because they're Jews. There is no salvation for them because they're Jews. They should be kept in a, per, a permanent state of humiliation by Christians as punishment for their rejection. It's like this real uh, fixation on this um, at the expense of so many other scriptures, even in John 10, where Jesus says, nobody takes my life away. I, have, I lay it down and I have the power to uh, raise it up again. Even in the crucifixion scene, we see many people in Jerusalem lamenting. They don't want him to go to the cross. We see some religious leaders wanting this. And then ultimately, we see the Romans crucifying him. So in a way, you could make a case that you see Jews and Gentiles as a part of this. John 3.16 comes for the entire world. Actually, our sins nailed him up there. So despite these concepts and truths that for the wages of sin are death and all have fallen, the church would lay it squarely on the Jews throughout history. And this would erupt into doing horrific things to Jewish people in the name of Jesus. So it's, it's, it's really difficult to wrap our heads around this, but you have a 17 centuries of this. You have what we would call Christian anti-Semitism, which is an oxymoron in itself. So anti-Semitism is the hatred of, of Jewish people, Jewish things, essentially. And you would say, how on earth can you put those things together? Because how can you be a Christian and, and hate a group of people, let alone the, the, the natural or earthly family of the Messiah, Jesus? But these are people who would profess to be Christian. They look Christian. They sound Christian. They read their Bibles. They go into churches. They sing hymns. They would, by all means, look a lot like us. Yet, they also twist theologies or believe that God hates the Jewish people. And they do these things in the name of Jesus. And so it is right today. Christian anti-Semitism, I've encountered it in Christian colleges. There's varying degrees of this. I've encountered it among other Christians as well, outside of the college setting. But it is alive today. And it's part of the wholesale of anti-Semitism. There's different forms of it. They're all related. Um, and then it's satanically driven. Um, but the, the amazing thing is God wins. So there's incredible things going on. 
And despite the history of Christian anti-Semitism, which is a whole lecture in itself, despite replacement theology, God, I believe, is shaking the church, and he's also shaking the synagogue, so uh, quote-unquote, to draw them back to himself, showing his will and the role of Israel, because it's connected with God's faithfulness. It's connected with all of this. I mean, Jesus himself says in John, salvation is of the Jews. Paul, in Romans 9, and he's speaking about unbelieving Israel, or the, the Israel that didn't understand or believe Jesus is the Messiah of his day. Just like Paul didn't at first, remember? Paul rejected this. He didn't believe this was, and then he has this amazing experience on the Damascus Road. And so what he says about Israel is he still says, first of all, he says he wishes that he could be accursed for them, the sake of his brother and his countrymen, the Israelites or the Jews. So he, he's recognizing this and understanding, like, how did we miss it? But then he says this, that what still belongs to them, he says the adoption, the covenants, the commandments, the promises, the oracles or the temple worship. He says this still belongs to them. He describes in Romans 9 to 11 that the hardening is only partial. That, and, then, and then he describes the olive tree and the roots are still holy and it gives nourishment into this tree. And it's a first fruit and, it's, and, and this lump is holy and it's been made room. I'll get into this a little bit later. So we see this incredible thing that God is going to do. He's drawing in Gentiles to himself. He's working with the natural branches and that's Paul's image. In Romans 11, but Paul ultimately says the gifts of, and callings of God are irrevocable. That's covenantal language. That line, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable, is also found in Jewish extra-biblical writings regarding the Abrahamic covenant from that period. So when Paul uses that line, that's what he's thinking of, this incredible relationship of God to Israel, because then he ends in 11 that Israel will be saved. This is this incredible plan of God. He's going to draw them back to him. And so bridges for peace in practical ways and showing the love of Christ and witnesses and word and we reach out to the Jewish people. Um, because many Jewish people, when you say I'm a Christian, you use the name Jesus, you talk about sin, those mean very different things. And then you have 17 centuries of this. So it's almost in a lot of Jewish people's minds when you say I'm a Christian, it's like in their minds, it's like, what kind of Christian are you? Like, are, do you actually show genuine love? Or are you one of those Christians with lots of conditions and you don't really see me as a person? Or you just want to fix me? Or you think I'm all wrong or I don't know anything? Or that I have no relationship with God or I don't know the Bible? Because many of them, my goodness, I've met most of my Orthodox Jewish friends know more scripture than most of the Christians I've ever met. They believe in prophecy. They believe God created the world. They believe in the nations. They believe in the redemption of all things. They believe in Messiah. They believe that God's going to restore the world, judge evil, and all of these things, and that God reveals himself to humanity. And it's incredible. So that we all have blind spots. There's differences, of course. But we are extending this incredible hand in eight nations around the world and our international headquarters in Israel. There's amazing things happening. And so we want to resource the church. We're not scolding the church. We love the church. The church is God's idea. Christ is the head of the church. The, the enemy of our souls wants to destroy, smear everything, right? Whatever God calls, okay? Man and woman, I'm going to smear that. Marriage, I'll smear that. Uh, when does life start? When does it end? I'll smear that. The church, I'll smear that. I'll make a mockery of that. 
Israel, I'll smear that. I'm going to try to wipe these people out. It, 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 like everything God calls, perfect, good. I have called you. I'm establishing covenant. All of these things he uh, is out to destroy. And so we love the church. We're followers of Jesus. He is the only way, the truth, and the light. And uh, no one comes to the Father but through him. But God is on the move. He's doing amazing things. He's working in people's lives. He's softening hearts. He's removing uh, hearts of stone and giving us hearts of flesh. We love it. It's just amazing. And so I'm I'm the National Director of British Peace Canada. My wife and I lived in Israel for three years, years ago. I've kind of, this is a calling on my life and risen up to into this position. And then October of 2020, I got a crazy phone call. Actually, it wasn't so crazy because my wife and I have been praying about this, meditating on it, reading, hearing from other people, speaking into our lives for 10 years that eventually we're going to go back. Like it's going to be something very big. So in October 2020, I get a phone call that the international board is is, uh, looking at the succession of the current international president and CEO in retirement. And basically my name came up and they all wanted me to be um, come into this position. They asked me, would I pray about it? I said, no, I've been praying about it for 10 years. I accept, I complete peace, complete peace, both my wife and I. And uh, so this January, we moved to Israel permanently. Our family, we sold our house three days ago. It's uh, Balagan in Hebrew is like kind of a, a chaotic order or like things that seem to be crazy like traffic in Israel, especially in Jerusalem, it's a Balagan, right? And uh, and so we moved there with uh, my wife, I think she's downstairs, Deanna, and our three uh, three kids, Judah, Naomi, and Mira, and our furry uh, kid, Frankie, 75-pound, uh, he's allowed to let go and laugh, not our child. Um, you know, so anyway, so this is big. This is big on our hearts. We want... You know, we want to be uh, you guys to journey with us. If any of you do, we can add an email to. We're going to be doing regular updates. We want you to uh, ask that you pray for us. It's it's massive. I'm going to be stepping into uh, into this role as the international president and CEO. Uh, June of 2023, I become the CEO. It's a stage retirement, and then I'll become the international president. And over this, over Israel and eight nations in this time, we have security, Iran. Um, the Abraham Accords, everybody and their dog having an opinion, the European Union, the United Nations, everything. We're not a political organization, but I'm talking about the pressures on Israel. And then I'm talking about Aliyah. And that's what we're going to talk about because this is, um, Aliyah is immigration to Israel. Okay? So Jewish people use this term Aliyah. It's an ancient term meant to ascend up. So we read the Psalms of Ascents. Those, are, those we, uh, weren't to be just read. They would sing them. Pilgrims, thousands, like you picture this, because wherever, no matter what angle or direction you come up to Jerusalem, you always go up. And so tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews for thousands of years back, when they would go up to the temple during the, the main feast, they would sing these Psalms of Ascents. And then when they would get like, think of, and I'm not just talking about Israel, think of our own lives too, the application here. When they would be coming up to, the, to worship God, in the sacred space. This is, the temple was an image of literal heaven and literal earth coming down. The earth is God's footstool. So that the temple is like, this is the presence of God. Yes, Jews believe God is everywhere. He's not contained in a box, but this is sacred. This is the Shekinah glory 
over this place. So when I'm coming up the steps, when I'm making Aliyah, when I'm ascending, singing this, the steps actually aren't just normal steps. And you can still see them. You can go to Israel today, go to Jerusalem. Andrew is there. On this, and I think Kevin, on the southern steps of the temple, you see the still original steps. Jesus would have walked up them. Peter, all the disciples would have walked up them. This is where the baptism of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And they would have all heard the sermon and been baptized in these mikvahot, which are Jewish ritual baths everywhere. But the steps aren't just like perfect little steps. It's like you kind of you picture a normal step, and then it's like maybe half a meter. And then there's like another normal step, and then a half a meter step. And the reason they do that is because when you go to worship God, you shouldn't rush. You shouldn't rush. Slow down. And on these wide steps, pilgrims would often drop to their knees and looking up and praising God. And then they would get up and step one step further, drop down. Why? Because it's like you're entering heaven on earth. You're, you're coming into the throne room of God on earth. That's accessible. Now, we're sealed in Christ by the Holy Spirit. But think about these concepts that they practically lived. They did them. They didn't just sit there with their eyes closed thinking about it. They did it. They lived it. That's a whole other sermon. That's not even my sermon. I can just keep going. That's, it's, it's incredible. So God is faithful, and, and God is faithful to Israel. Faithfulness is a Hebrew word, emunah. Emunah. Write that down. Emunah. That is faithful. So when you're reading in the, the Older Testament, whenever you see in your English translations, faith, Faithfulness, it's the same word. So, emunah is faithful. You know what the word for faithfulness or to live out faithfulness is in Hebrew? Emunah. It's the same thing. And so it's like to be faithful, it's, it's not a mental exercise. It's not just something you believe. It's, you do. It's noticed. It's lived out. That is how every Jew who reveres this book since Abraham to today sees faithfulness. And I said, Jewish people who revere the book, because there's obviously Jewish people who are atheists or Jewish people who are whatever. But Jewish people who love this scripture, that's how they see faithfulness. It's something you also you do. Okay, faith without works is dead. Rings a bell? It's something we do. It's something that's noticed. It's something God opens up because we don't naturally want to go that way as humans anyway. It's hard. It hurts. It needs repair. When you want to live out and be faithful, it is noticed. The works and all. So you got to work on yourself. Okay? So, Emunah. This is the heart of why God also, he calls Israel. Now, he calls Israel to be faithful to him. But first and foremost, when he cuts the pieces in Genesis 15, Abraham doesn't walk between the pieces. God does, and he establishes a covenant based on him. And he says, I'm faithful to this covenant. And that, that once again, the cutting of the covenant, Genesis 15, is a whole other thing. But God will not renege on that. Like, just like us. When we are faithful, what happens? We can be disciplined. We can experience hardship. We can feel like we're wandering. We can feel like we're in a wilderness. We can feel like just down. It's hard. Israel was the same. When Israel was faithful... When they reciprocated, when they, because when they, they're like this bride, God calls them to be a bride. Wow, he blesses them, he works. But when they start straying, things go wrong. What does God do though? He doesn't just leave them. He's, 
calls them back. In fact, he also, right in the tabernacle in the temple, gives a way to repair, a way to restore sin offerings, heave offerings, praise offerings, come back to me. He's, he's always saying that because I'm going to be faithful to you. Now, you don't get away with it all. It'll hurt. When you break this faithfulness, I don't stop being faithful, but it's going to hurt. Because I, when, when we get called back to God, it can hurt. And Israel, we read through the good, the bad, the ugly. It hurt a lot. But their future, and we're going to talk about that, their future is incredible. Just like ours. Just like the nation's. They're not just let, like whenever you talk about Israel, it's the nations are connected to this. This is by design. Then the prophets, all the prophets, major and minor as we call them, they were, they had jobs to do a couple of things. Um, when I'm at like 25 minutes, make a sound, snap your fingers, say, hey, or just wink at me or nod, whatever you want to do. I know. Okay. Actually, I brought this up here. This is hilarious. I brought this up here to, um, to do my timer. Never even turn it on. Um, I'll just keep looking at it so you guys think I have all the time. Okay. So the voice, the, the prophets, they would they would call out sin. They'd recognize sin. They called out uh, for the nation to repent. They called out judgment if there isn't repentance. But all of this is restorative hope. It's restorative love. So even the judgment is trying to restore. Right? It's hard sometimes. And, and but it's it's not just like judgment. I'm gonna throw you out and pretend like you never existed. I'm never gonna ever have another relationship with you. I'm, gonna, I'm just gonna, you're dead to me forever. No, it's like, okay, judgment will come. It's gonna really suck. It's gonna be really hard. Your villages will be destroyed. Jerusalem ultimately will be destroyed. All of this, but I'm faithful because of the, the promise I gave to your forefathers. I'm gonna clean you up. I'm going to bring you back. This is going to be amazing. So the return of Israel is crucial in the prophets, and I would say also the New Testament. It's crucial to the restoration and rule of the king. It's the restoration of the world and the king in Jerusalem. I'm not talking about a King David. I'm talking about the ultimate King David, the king. It's all connected. Israel's return and in gathering. That's what I'm talking about. This is an amazing thing because it moves in the direction of the redemption of all mankind. So let's read a couple um, passages. So who is God? This is amazing. So this, like, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of this. And then this is what David says about who this faithful God is in Psalm 105. He said he remembers his covenant. So first of all, verse 7, he is the Lord, our God. And there's essentially there the Lord. You'll see capital L-O-R-D. In the Hebrew, you have it's where we get kind of Yahweh from. But they'll say Adonai. That's connected with Chesed, his steadfast love. And our God, um, Elohim, is connected with justice. So David is saying he is the God of absolute steadfast love. And he is the God of absolute justice. This is who he is, and he can't be anything less. And he connects his chesed and his justice with this. That's why he says his judgments are in all the earth. There's the justice. The word, um, he remembers his covenant forever. There's the chesed. There's the steadfast love. The word which he commanded for a thousand generations. My goodness, that's a Hebraic uh, a metaphor or a hyperbole forever. He's not going to forget this. 
The covenant which he made with Abraham and his oath to Isaac and confirmed it to Jacob for a statue to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. So Abraham in Genesis 12 has three things planned and promised to him. You're going to have literal descendants. This is real life stuff, not in the sky, whatever you want. This is real life stuff. And Abraham believes them and it's credited to him as righteousness. I'll give you descendants, land, and through those things, the whole world is going to hear about me. They're going to be blessed. That's us. So it's, it's not this exclusive Israel club. It's the ultimate uh, passion that's going to the world. First Chronicles 17, 21, 22. David said, who is like Israel that you have redeemed them from all the nations? This is a vehicle nation that God, and he redeems them by covenant. Ezekiel 36. This is incredible stuff. Ezekiel 36, and I'm going to um, lay this all out very practically, okay? So Ezekiel 36, 18 to 36, okay? I'm going to just paraphrase it, but read it later. At this point, what has happened is the northern kingdom of Israel, done. The Assyrians have come in, dragged them out, destroyed, scattered them. About two centuries later, you have Judah and Benjamin, which are uh, the two kingdoms which were absorbed and known as the kingdom of Judah over Jerusalem. You have the sin that just amounts. King Zedekiah will not change his ways. He will not repent. And Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians come in and destroy this city and take many of them, not all of them, but many of them into exile. Uh, Daniel ends up there. And then what we're going to do is have them, a small remnant return. Most of them actually stay out there. And the remnant is Ezra and Nehemiah, Zerubbabel, that period. But most of them stay out there because Babylon is just, they built their lives. Jeremiah said, build homes. And they built their lives. They've gotten comfortable. The prophecy has come true. After 70 years, you're going to go back, but only a small remnant go back. But then the northern kingdom of Israel, they're still all over the place. And God tells Ezekiel, through the prophet Ezekiel, that I have concern for my holy name. And he says, you guys, Israel, you are in the nations. You're all over the place. You're profaning my name being in the nations. What does that mean? Well, it says that the nations will mock God because the Jews are all over the place, but they're not in their land. Your God's weak. Your God isn't faithful. He can't deliver. So this isn't like Israel rightfully at that time is in the nations. Why? Because of sin. And now they're still in the nations and now they're being mocked. God is concerned for his holy name. God is faithful. So he says to Ezekiel, so this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to round you all up. I'm going to draw you from the four corners out of all lands. The other, some of the other prophets identify the actual lands that they will come out of. Places like Shinar and Cush, the ancient words for like Ethiopia, India, China. They're going to come out of the four corners. This is not the small return of Ezra, where a little tiny remnant come back. Most of the Jews at that time are still scattered all over the world. He says, I'm going to gather you. I'm going to bring you all back. I will plant you in your land, in this land. Then they got to be cleansed. They got to be clean because they're dirty. He goes, then I'll wash you. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit into you. And boy, oh boy, like this is like, this is incredible. You have the Valley of Dry Bones in 37. Isaiah 11:12 12 describes that the nations are going to see this, that a banner is put up and the nations of the world all see this huge return. Jeremiah 31, 
31 to 37. This basically say, I'll, I'll break my covenant with Israel when there, there's no stars, when there's no sun, when there's no sands, when there's no moon, and they all disappear, then I'll break my covenant with Jacob. This is an amazing thing, though, right here. Jeremiah 16. See, this is all, it's not about Israel. It's about who God is. He's faithful. And he ties himself to this through his faithfulness. So once again, I talked a little bit about Ezekiel and the, and the Babylonians coming. This is a horrific time where Jerusalem gets destroyed. People are eating each other. People are starving to death. They are trying to fight against the Babylonians. They, there's false prophets that have said, oh, no, we'll win. Or, oh, no, we'll only be in Babylon two years. There's absolute desperation. There's bad advisors giving um, uh, counsel to Zedekiah. And then he's hardening his heart. He doesn't want to do this. Jeremiah is accused of treason. He's thrown into a pit. All of this stuff is going on. Yet, throughout all of Jeremiah, he, God, God gives them like dozens of opportunities to repent. Even in the midst of that, he's like, you come back to me, I'll stop this. You come back to me, I'll stop this. And it's over and over. It's the faithfulness of God. He beckons us. He calls us back to him. And in the midst of like hell on earth in the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by the Babylonians, God gives him this incredible promise. Incredible promise. Jeremiah 16, 14 to 16. Therefore, behold, the days are coming. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. This is Exodus. This is Sinai. This is, in my opinion, apart from Jesus, the, the biggest event in all of biblical history. This is like the whole Bible just like rests on this. Like, this is a massive event. I'll bring you out. Pharaoh, all of this. But God is telling Jeremiah, there's going to come a day when that will pale in comparison to something I'm going to do. It's like nobody will even almost be talking about it. It's like there's going to be something bigger. And then he says this. So the Lord lives who brought you up out of the, ch the children of the Israel of the land of Egypt. But this is what he's going to be known as. The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north. And from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into the land which I gave to their, their fathers. Now this is interesting. He uses Israel. He doesn't just say Judah. Israel. This holy, all the lands. I'm going to bring you, all of you back. I mean, that's another image later in Jeremiah. Even with the new covenant. The house of Israel and Judah are come together into one. I'm going to bring Israel back from all of these lands. And I'm going to say that this is happening in our day. It's a process. This is happening in our day. Right now. This is incredible. Before I throw up these pictures and explain a little bit more of this, look at in Deuteronomy 30, verse 5. Deuteronomy 30, verse 5 says this. So this is after all the threatening. Moses has told the children of Israel, my goodness, if you guys fall away, you know, trust in the Lord, but if you, when you guys fall away, think bad things will happen, and eventually you will be driven away, but God will regather you. This is restoration. Then the Lord your God will bring you to the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it 
He will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. More than your fathers. So Moses is saying, there's a day when you're all in the land, backing up. Sin, all of these things will happen. You guys will go out. But he's going to gather you back, all of you, and you'll be bigger and better and more prosperous than the biggest prosperity you ever experienced prior to that. That prosperity prior to what is happening today has not happened in 2,000 years, over 2,000 years. He's not talking about this little remnant that comes out of Babylon. It wasn't even very prosperous when they returned. The guys, everybody wept when they saw the temple because they remembered what it was. It was prosperous, it was bigger. There were more people in the land. The land was protected. They were sovereign ruling, all of these things. Now, this is the cool thing because Deuteronomy 30, verse 5, is the 5,708th verse. So if you start Genesis 1 1 and you count 5,708 verses in, you arrive at Deuteronomy 30, verse 5. I'm just saying, the founding of Israel on the Hebrew calendar was it founded in the year 5,708. Wrap your minds around that, a little bit around that. But this is incredible. Something big is happening. And why is this so amazing? Nobody did this in the ancient world. So when Moses is telling Israel this, they are all thinking, almost they didn't say it, but this, has, this can't be true. This doesn't happen. God cannot do this. Why? Everybody in the ancient world was terrified about a couple of things. The loss of identity. Who are you? It's not as an individual. Your identity is in your people, your clan, your tribe, your city. Everything that you are is connected to that. Your faith, all everything you cherish is in that. And life was extremely unpredictable. There were um, warring bands and tribes and armies, conquest, Things that happened, life was extremely fragile. And Moses yet tells them, you guys are going to be in this land. Here's your identity. You're Israel. You're going to have these cities. You're going to go and take this land. God is your God, all of this. But then you're going to be tossed away to the wind because of your sin. But you know what? He'll bring you back. You still have that identity. That doesn't happen in the ancient world. Nobody, that didn't happen. Even the, the language that's used when Joshua enters the land and he, he destroys lots of these cities, it's removal of identity. They, they lose it. It's like they, they're not known as that anymore. But it's like Moses is like, you won't lose this because God's bigger. Even in your rebellion, God is bigger. He knows who you are. He knows where you are. He will preserve you. And one day he's going to also bring you all back. Like this is, this would have been impossible for these people at that time before Moses to even consider so let's look at some of these slides. Okay, five. You said thirty-five. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is where I'm ending anyway. So that's that's a good time. So look at this. This a little over a month ago, I was in Israel, and the first flight in almost twenty years of Ethiopian Jews or Jews from Kush, of uh, uh, the first flight of 189 of the, the remaining 10,000 are coming back. Now, this is incredible because for 2,700 years, the tribe of Dan, which was is in northern in, in, the, in the kingdom of Israel, the tribe of Dan, when the Assyrians destroyed them, they were dispersed, and most of them ended up in Cush. They're your modern Ethiopian Jews. 
And they were like cut off there. They were in a region called the Gondor region, not Gondor from Lord of the Rings, but Gondor and Addis Ababa. Okay? And they were like cut off. So they were living generation to generation for 2,700 years, still in a first temple. Think this first temple Judaism or Jewish faith. They didn't know that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed the temple because they've been cut off. They didn't know that happened. So they're, they're living in this region. Israel hears about them. They go start um, communicating with them. Then there's civil war. This is in the 1970s. So what does Israel do? They ask the Ethiopian government. we got to rescue these people. Can we come and take them? The Ethiopian government says no. Israel goes in there anyways, drops paratroopers. It's an incredible operation. They take thousands of these people to these airplanes. These people have never seen airplanes. They're terrified. And what do the Israeli paratroopers say? You remember the words of Isaiah on wings of eagles. So they point to the airplanes and say, those are eagles. And everybody races onto these planes. They take them to Jerusalem of today and, they, and blow these people's minds. So thousands of them got out. Some actually how Israel discovered them is some of them were walking to Israel from Ethiopia. Thousands died. Thousands, it is horrific. A lot of them ended up in refugee camps, but a lot of them just showed up at the border. And, and, and this is incredible. So now today there's 155,000 Ethiopian Jews in the land. And the last 10,000 are all coming back. And Israel's bringing them back. When they come off these planes, they're kissing the ground. Everybody's welcoming them and, and, and crying out to the welcome home and playing music. These people become Israeli citizens in like under an hour. They, they come off the plane right in the airport, boom, boom, boom. Here, you're all, you're all Jew, you're all Israelis. You've made Aliyah, you've come home. We've gathered you from the four corners of the earth. Then there's another tribe. B'nai Menashe, the sons of Manasseh. They're not lost. We refer to these lost ten, 10 lost tribes. Well, we know in scripture it says that with um, that many of the refugees, especially with the threat of Assyria, came down to Judah during the time of Hezekiah and they lived there. So lots of the, the people from the north came down south, but the people who were dispersed aren't lost. So the sons of Manasseh come out of India and China and they're coming back. They're literally coming back from the four corners. Is God this exact? It's incredible. Go to the next picture. Like, look at this. Like, it, I, I just, boy, I, I was speechless for a few days. That might be hard to believe. Here, go ahead. Go ahead. They're coming back. They're, it's incredible. And the nations are part of this. That Isaiah talk, uh, talks about carrying them on our shoulders. Moving back. Psalm 117 says the nations will rejoice because of the great things God has done through this nation. Zephaniah describes Gentiles and, and Jews being of one shoulder. Our translations say shoulder to shoulder, but it's actually of one shoulder. Zechariah says that when the king returns and he's in Jerusalem, the nations will go all the way up to Jerusalem to celebrate Sukkot, Feast of Tabernacles, which is connected with the outpouring of the Spirit and the Messianic Age. Jews today, right now, today, in Israel, are all talking about this. Oh, man, it's going to be hard. It's going to be tough, but Messiah's coming back. The nations are coming back. They're all going to, like, the whole world is, like, converging on this point. And this is my closing. Here, go ahead. So this is the Pool of Siloam. This is where Jesus healed the blind man. This is where uh, the kings of Judah were anointed. Um, this is where Jesus in John 10 right out of Neal Flow Living Waters, because he's watching the water ceremony at Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, that John tells us on the last great day of the, of the feast. And, that's, and this is Sukkot. 
And uh, so it's amazing that it's connected with the Messianic age and Jesus relates to himself as out of Neoflow living waters. And everybody starts talking about the Christ. Is he the Messiah? But so this was discovered in 2004 when a water main pipe burst. And, and they were trying to like repair it and then found steps called in the antiquities authorities and he uncovered the full pool of Siloam. Now this is my final point. Going up from the pool of Siloam at the time of Jesus was a road called the Pilgrim's Way, okay? This is like, Jesus would have walked this road many, many, many times his whole life, young to old, because he's there at the feasts. We know he went to the feasts. And all the, the Jewish pilgrims, thousands of them, would walk this road. Zechariah tells us that the nations, us, will go up to Jerusalem for Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. You can't celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles properly without the Pool of Siloam, and then being able to ascend from the Pool of Siloam to the Temple Mount. Go to the next slide. This was just discovered three years ago. This is the original Pilgrim's Way. This is the, the, this is the Pilgrim's Way that went from the Pool of Siloam to the Temple Mount. Now, it's not the full width, because there's 60 feet above it are um, Arab homes. And so that's why you have to steal reinforced concrete, because they want to support the, what's above it. But this, these are the original steps. Jesus, the uh, disciples, the apostles, Jews for hundreds and hundreds of years have walked down this. And this is associated, this is associated also with the nations coming to Jerusalem to worship the king. And the, the, the directors of the city of David said this, we're excavating this. You know why? Not for just for, because it's a cool archaeological discovery. We're excavating this so that when you got, when Messiah comes and you guys come to Jerusalem, we can all be on this together. And it's happening like now. It's like, wrap your head around this. This is incredible stuff. We're all a part of it. We're grafted in. And God is faithful. He's faithful to them with all their warts, with, uh, with struggling with belief, with all their history. He's faithful to us with our unbelief, with our struggles, with all of our warts. But if he would take them and say, you guys messed up. You know, I know I promised you forever. Don't like you anymore. Done. What, where does that leave us? It's, it's almost like then we got to like perform like a puppet, hoping that everything, that he'll, he won't do the same for us. Because he says the same things to us. I won't leave you. I'll never leave you. You're, the, you're my bride. And he says the same things to them. So this is the mighty God we serve. And it's such a blessing to be here. Amen. Lord, we give you thanks for the whole morning. We, I was just overcome with the singing this morning, uh, just hearing the church praise your name and giving the glory to you. It was an incredible experience. Uh, we thank you for Peter and, and uh, his family. We uh, pray a blessing over his family and his life as they move to Israel and take the risk. And I know it's something that they did on their heart for a decade, Lord, so thank you for fulfilling that, that desire in them. We pray for the anointing of the Holy Spirit over that ministry, and you continue to bring the Jewish people uh, into a relationship with you, and that they would come to know you as the Messiah very quickly, and, and the nation would be transformed by experiencing your spirit. We thank you for joining Charlene in there, uh, what they brought to us in terms of their faith and their courage and their boldness and experience. Thank you for putting a chance upon their lives and how they've imparted faith to us as well. Thank you for what you've done in and through us over the last two weeks and what you will continue to do in the future. 
and we pray for the rest of the day, Lord, that people would be mindful of you and they seek to honor you with everything in their life. Thank you.